Um, if you've been with us for the past five weeks, you know that we have been going through this series on Jesus' letters to churches in the book of Revelation. And what you probably noticed about those letters is that most of them have some good things to say and they have some bad things to say. There's good news and there's bad news. There's commendation and there's condemnation and rebuke and challenge. And if you're paying attention to the letter that you just heard read, you may have noticed there was no bad news. There was only good news. There was only um, encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, no constructive criticism, no rebuke. So you might think, well, that's the church with no problems, right? Wouldn't you like to be in a church with no problems? Um, but is it true? Is it true that the church in Philadelphia didn't have any problems? And if it's not true, then what is their problem? I think we'll see in this letter that, that there is a problem if we look closely. And there is a plight um, of the church in Philadelphia. And some problems are less obvious than others. You may not even know it's a problem. I recently heard this story about a 62-year-old man. We'll call him Tom because, as you'll see, this is an anonymous story. Um, Tom got a perplexing phone call one day. Maybe you've gotten a call like this. Um, it was a call saying that he um, had unclaimed money that he needed to claim. And all he had to do was fill out some paperwork and this great wealth would be his. And Tom was a little skeptical, as you can imagine, um, but the name of the agency that called him stuck out to him. It was, the, it was called the Abandoned Property Division. And so um, they said, you have unclaimed stocks that you need to claim, shares in a company that you need to claim, and this is a wealth waiting on you. And he thought, that's actually partially true. I have owned stocks throughout my life. He remembered in 1987, Tom, he, he got a call from his cousin saying, you should buy some of this stock that I'm buying. It's a company called EMC. It's a computer company that now is a part of Dell. And so he did. He bought 3,000 shares in EMC. And um, as a family struggling with money, struggling to uh, make ends meet, his kids got to college, and he said, you know what, I need, to sh I need to sell these shares so that I can pay for tuition. This bill is more important than the hope of future money. So he sold shares in uh, the early 90s. And then in 1992, the, sh the stock started to soar. And um, it made lots of people millionaires. Um, in fact, it split six times. And in a decade, it rose 80,575% um, in 10 years. Those same 10 years that Tom was working in the job that he's been in for 30 years. And every time when he got curious and he watched the news or he read the newspaper to see how the stock was doing, he kicked himself for selling it. And then he gets this call and he gets curious. And so he goes up to the attic where all the junk from through the years has been stored and all the old furniture. And in, in the back of the attic, among all the dust and the cobwebs, he finds a cardboard box and he dusts it off and he opens it. 
And sure enough, there are a thousand shares of EMC in this cardboard box. It was the paperwork from the shares that he owned. What happened is he had bought 3,000 shares in 1987, and in the 90s when he paid for tuition, he only sold 2,000 of those shares, but thought that he had sold them all. And so there was a remaining 1,000 shares tucked away in his attic. Unbeknownst to him, he had actually still possessed stock in EMC. And those 1,000 shares were now worth after, split, after multiplying um, 48,000 times, they were now worth $4 million. <clears throat> and when they ask him about it, how did this happen? He says, well, I'm no accounting genius. And um, so I, I guess you have to be an accounting genius to, to, to do the simple math of 3,000 minus 2,000 equals 1,000. But it slipped his mind, and he had become a millionaire overnight. But that's not true, is it? He had actually been a millionaire through the 90s. He had been a millionaire for years, and yet he never knew it. And you can imagine all the times that he scraped by the things he said no to, the, the modest things that he purchased when, when he could have purchased something better, all because he didn't know the, the riches that he possessed. Here's what's true. Um, You can have something and not know that you have it. You can possess something without realizing. In fact, you can live. um, Something can be true about you, and you can live like it's not true. We've all met uh, a man or a woman who was absolutely beautiful, and yet you talk to them and they say, I feel like I'm ugly. They don't know that they're beautiful. Or maybe someone who is incredibly smart, who always thinks that they're stupid and uneducated. You can be something without realizing that it's true about you. Um, You can have something and live like you don't have it. I hear it all the time. And maybe that's the problem with the church in Philadelphia. See, faith is hard. It's hard to be faithful. Because you have to live like something is true, even when you can't see it or feel it or prove it. And maybe you're on the outside looking in, and you look at Christians who claim to have peace and joy, and you think, I don't see a lot of peace and joy. And maybe you're a Christian here today, and you're thinking, I know that Christ promises me peace and joy. But the problem with faith is that we live by faith and not by sight. And so many times when we look at our lives... We don't see the peace and joy that we want in full. We only see it in part. And so it's hard to live in the ways that, um, in, in the ways that Jesus describes us because we live by faith and not by sight. And maybe that was the problem with the church in Philadelphia. Maybe they didn't know they were beautiful. Maybe they didn't know they were rich. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, hold fast. Hold fast to the promises. But to understand that church, we need to understand the ancient context of Philadelphia. We all know the ancient, uh, we all know that, that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? And the ancient city of brotherly love was known for cheesesteaks and Ben Franklin impersonators 
and obnoxious football fans. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's the modern Philadelphia. Um, apologies if you're from there. I've lived there. Eagles fans can be pretty obnoxious. Um, ancient Philadelphia was known for something else. Ancient Philadelphia was known for grapes. It was wine country. And in fact, they worshipped the god of Dionysus, the god of wine, the god of epiphany, who comes to you unexpected, um, who visits you after a couple of glasses of wine when the buzz starts to set in. Um, and in this, this wine country, um, one of the things that shaped the city of Philadelphia was, was an earthquake that happened in AD 17, and it, it leveled most of the city. It was a, a catastrophic disaster, and in fact, most of the people living there during the time of this letter would have actually been living outside the city out of fear. They were afraid that if they lived in the city, the earthquake could come again, and these buildings would topple. It was much safer to live around the city. And the city itself was founded by the, a royal family. Um, that's why it was called Philadelphia, because it was, it was founded by Adelus Philadelphus, who was named, uh, who took that name because he loved his younger brother. And he named this city in his brother's honor. And they called it Philadelphia. And the city of Philadelphia was very proud of its origins. They liked that they were called the city of brotherly love. They liked that they had a good family, that love was at the heart of their origin story as a city. But this was also a city that changed its name a lot. Um, after the earthquake, the Roman emperor said, you know what, we're actually going to give you guys a reprieve because you're in a natural disaster. We're going to send FEMA in, and we are going to uh, give some emergency relief, and you don't have to pay taxes, which is a pretty good deal for um, a city there in, in Asia Minor um, on the gateway to the, from the east and the west. And they said, no taxes. You know what, we will change our name. Um, and they changed their name to... Neo Caesarea as a tribute to their patron. And, um, and then they had another patron, for another patronage from another emperor, and they changed their name to Flavia. And so, um, and, and yet at the same time, they had nicknames as an imperial dynasty um, as this gateway from the east, from the west to the east. Um, they were kind of a missionary city. And they, um, they were supposed to take the customs of the West and bring them to the East. And they actually did, and they were very successful in this. Um, and because of that, they were called Little Athens. And so you see in this ancient city of Philadelphia, um, both pride in who they were, but also um, a flexibility and, and a willingness to change based on whoever was patronizing them at the time. And all of these themes are addressed in the letter to the church there, as you might imagine. Um, so if that's what the city looked like, then what did the church look like? Well, we see in verse 8, um, Jesus starts to describe the church. And, he's, and he tells them, um, part of their plight, he says, is that you have little power. But he says that, that something good that they did, he says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. They have kept his word, and they have not denied his name. Um, and so 
Jesus encourages the church for that. Because faith is hard, it's really difficult to proclaim the name of Jesus. And what is the name of Jesus? Jesus' name um, in, in Hebrew is the name Joshua. What, what is my name? Um, maybe you've heard it, Yeshua is the way they would have pronounced it then. And it actually means Yahweh saves. And so when they held fast, when they proclaimed the name of Jesus, what they were saying is that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh saves. Jesus is my salvation. Salvation can only be found in his name, in him. And so whenever someone said, yeah, Jesus, do you, do you really believe in this carpenter from Judea? Do you really believe in him? They would say, yes, I do. I believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And when they said, yeah, the, the only way, Jesus saves, but, but what about all these other gods? They said, no, Jesus alone is the way to salvation. And maybe even when they said, well, yeah, Jesus is great, but you need to do all these other things to be saved. They would say, no, in Jesus is salvation. Yahweh saves. He's the only one that can save us. Jesus is salvation. And so Jesus commends them for keeping his name. They did not deny his name, even when it was difficult. They said, he is the only thing that I will cling to when I stand before judgment. And he also says that they, they kept his word. And verse 10 even says that they kept his word of patient endurance. I think there he's talking about his coming again. He's saying, you've, you've believed me. You, you believed my word. When I told you I would come back, you haven't stopped believing. You haven't stopped hoping that I would return. And so they, they are commended for their faith. They're commended for believing these true things about Jesus, these true things about salvation. And they're even believing that he will return. So what's, what's the problem here? If it's not what they believed about Jesus, then maybe they were actually struggling to believe what was true about themselves. And they had good reason to doubt. Because this passage also tells us in verse 9 that there is, um, there is some opposition to their little church. They may have little power, they may be few in number, but they're also attacked. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What we realize here is that the Philadelphian Christians were living in this theological debate. They were living um, among accusation. There were people there who were either ethnic Judeans or they were converts to the Jewish faith and worshipped the God of the old, what we now call the Old Testament, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And throughout the New Testament, we see this quarrel. We see this theological debate between the Jews and the Christians. And it's a quarrel over who is the true heir to the Old Testament. Who is the true heir to the promises from the Old Testament. And eventually the Christians were excommunicated from the synagogues. 
And so we see this theological debate that they're in, and we see that there are people who are accusing them. And Jesus knows that it's more than just a theological debate. It's more than just who, is, who has the correct theology. Um, and he puts it in an interesting way. See, Jesus could say, well, you're right, and they'll know that you're right, because when I come, I'm going to vindicate you, and, you're, and, and they're actually going to bow down before you, and they'll know that you're right. But he doesn't say that they'll know that you're right. He says, they'll know that I have loved you. And I think that's actually what's going on in this theological debate, is there's a deeper level there, is that these other, these Jews that were there, who didn't believe in Jesus, who said, all of these, all of these Jesus followers are not welcome here. What they're saying to the Christians is they're saying, God doesn't love you. Yahweh doesn't love you. He loves us. And he hates you. And Jesus knows that, and that's why when he vindicates them, he says, they will learn that I have loved you. And I wonder if you know that voice. I wonder if you know that voice of accusation. God doesn't love you. God hates you. Um, We all have a common enemy. Jesus called him a thief who breaks in to steal the sheep from the good shepherd. Um, But his most ancient name is Satan, the accuser, the adversary. And you may think I'm crazy, but yes, I believe that we have an enemy, that Satan is still working among us to accuse us and to steal the sheep, to lead us astray. And one of the primary tactics he uses is to get us to believe that God does not love us. He's doing what he's always done. That's what he did in the garden, isn't it? The ancient serpent. He went to Adam and Eve and he says, did did God really say that you couldn't eat from this tree? I think God was trying to keep you from something good because he doesn't really love you. And he sowed that seed of doubt that God loved them, and that is, is why they rebelled. They disbelieved in God. They believed that he was holding out on them. And that's, that's his tactic. He's not very creative. He uses the same thing over and over again, and he still comes to us today whispering that same accusation. God doesn't love you. We may not have a group of people um, in our city excommunicating us the way the Philadelphians do, but we hear that voice, God doesn't love you. And that's why in all my years of ministry, probably the most common thing I hear from people is saying, I don't really feel like God loves me. Maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you said it this way, I know that God loves me, in my head, or I I know that God says he loves me, but I don't feel his love. I don't feel like God really loves me. And so it's hard to, to live like that's true. And this is what Jesus promises. He says, I will come and vindicate you and they will know that I've loved you. I will silence your accusers and I will silence the voice of the enemy and I will crush him under my feet. 
and they will know that I have loved you. Hold fast. Hold fast to the promise. And someday, now you live by faith, but one day you will live by sight. And you will feel it fully. And all will know that I will love you. But you know, that, that sometimes doesn't feel like enough to make us really feel it. You know, old habits die hard. We like to say that, um, that when we remember something easily, it's like riding a bike, right? Um, but what if you've been riding a bike the wrong way your entire life? Uh, there was a guy named Destin Sandlin who's an engineer. They did an experiment on implicit memory and bias. And the way they did this was they got this engineer to engineer a bicycle that every time you turn left, it went right. And every time you turn right, it went left. And you think, how, many time, how, how long did it take you to learn how to ride a bike? Maybe a couple of days, maybe a week. And that's when you were a five-year-old and you lacked a lot of motor skills that you have now. Um, so they created this bicycle and they said, we're going to see if you can actually ride it and how long it will take you to ride the bike, to learn how to ride this bike. And on, uh, on the surface, it should be pretty easy, right? Left is right, right is left. That doesn't take very long to learn. Um, and all you have to do is tell yourself, Turn right, turn left, reverse that, and I got this. It took a grown man three weeks <laughs> to learn how to ride this bicycle at the level of like a five-year-old. And, um, and the point there is that old habits die hard. And when we've lived an entire life feeling like we're unloved, feeling like God doesn't love us, it's a lot more difficult than just saying, yeah, but he does. And so we have, to, we have to believe it. We have to hold fast to it and believe it here. We also need other people to tell us that it's true. We need to come here and worship him every week. We need to go to, um, to the word, not out of duty, but to hear the gospel, to hear the good news that in Christ we are right with God and we are loved by him. And we need other people to actually show us what it means to be loved. Now, in the, in the best families, I think one of the purposes for parenting and one of the purposes in marriage is that we show one another what love feels like so that when we hear that God loves us, we know what it feels like and we believe, we believe that he loves us. But many of us don't have that. Many of us don't have the implicit memories to make us trust that. We've been riding a bicycle that's, that's been reversed our entire lives. And we're trying to learn what it means to be loved by God and how to feel it and live like it's true. And one of the consequences of that is that when you've lived your entire life believing that you're unloved, you actually look for evidence that that's true. And you make bids to other people, and you set these tests to see if they'll love you. And we do the same thing with God. And then we find evidence that he doesn't. Maybe we think, well, if I didn't get the job that I wanted, then clearly God doesn't love me. Or if he hasn't answered my prayer the way I wanted him to answer, then 
then maybe he doesn't love me. If he brings disaster and pain into my life, then, then maybe he hates me. And the problem is when we live our lives looking for rejection, looking for evidence of rejection, it actually alienates us from the people that, that want to love us, including God. And we look for reasons to believe that we will be rejected and abandoned again. That especially happens when we're powerless. Because what I know about powerlessness is that when you don't have power, you believe that things will never change. And how did Jesus describe the church in Philadelphia? He said they were those of little power. They were not the dynamic church plant with the worship album and the the speakers that everyone wants to subscribe to their podcast and the novelist and the, the, the nonfiction writers that people look to. Um, they were the church of little power. And so I wonder if it's true about them as well that they were struggling to believe that God loved them. And you may ask, wait, why, am, why are we talking about families here? Um, we've spent a lot of time in the past five weeks looking at the context of these letters and we've talked about the cultural um, worldview that we live in and the air that we breathe and the cultural idols the way that, that our cities, whether it be Nashville or New York or L.A. or D.C., the way the places that we live shape the way we view money and sex and power and meaning. But we haven't actually talked much about the way our families shape the way we view those things. We haven't talked much about our family idolatries and our family worldviews. And yes, I realize that it's Thanksgiving week, and I'm about to ruin your Thanksgiving. <laughs> Hopefully that's not true. Um, we have not looked much at our families through these letters. We've looked at our cities and our culture and the influence that it's had on it. And it's true that our, our culture certainly does influence us. But let me ask, who was your first teacher? What was your first classroom was not your family and your community your first classroom for all things, good and bad? Was not your family your first classroom for evil? Was not your family your first classroom for sin? Was not your family your first classroom for pain and hurt? Our families teach us a lot about how to view sex and money, and power, and meaning, and conflict, and emotions, and a lot of other things. And I would say maybe even more so than our culture in some ways. So maybe you say, well, my family never taught me anything. And I would say to you, um, who says, they never spoke a word about money or sex or power in my family. Did not their silence teach you something? And you may have said, um, you may say, well, but I had a good family. Just like the Philadelphians did. We came from a good family that loved one another. We're the city of brotherly love. And praise God that you come from a family that loves one another. And yet, they still taught you things 
they still passed along their idols and their family culture to you. Listen, I'm a parent. I don't think that somehow uh, my parenting is going to be a loophole in the fall. And um, because I believe in Jesus and have been to seminary and I'm a pastor, that somehow my children are going to escape my own idolatries and my own sin. I know that, that, that every parent knows there are things they're proud of and things they're not proud of. And we often pass things on that we don't even realize. And so if you find yourself saying, um, my parents did the best they could, or if you find yourself saying that others had it worse, let me tell you that those are signs that you may need to actually peel back the layers and look at why am I trying so hard to protect my family? What are the things they have taught me that are good And what are the things that they have taught me about God and myself and the world that I live in that are actually not good, that that need to be repented of? But I'm not just talking about family because it's Thanksgiving and you're all about to sit around a table um, and ignore all the past pain and hurt that's there as you eat turkey and watch football. That's not why I'm talking about it. And I'm not talking about it just because we've overlooked that as a, a way that idolatry is passed on to us. The, way I'm talk, the reason I'm talking about family is because it's in the text. You notice as we read this letter that it talks so much about our names and who is it that names us? Our parents. Where, if Jesus is going to give us a new name, then where did our old name come from? It came from our parents. It came from our early communities. And I'm not just talking about the name that's on our driver's license, and I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's talking about something deeper. I'm talking about the various names and labels and roles that are put on us through our childhood and our youth that, um, that are like yokes around our neck. Some of them, some of these names are, are no doubt said with good intentions, some with jest and humor, maybe even respect, but they rarely honor us and point us to our calling the way God intends for us. So I want to ask you, who has named you? I'm not saying it was your parents. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher or a boyfriend or a bully um, I remember in the third grade, I had the meanest teacher in elementary school. Her name was Betsy Snipes, and she deserved it. <laughs> um, she was known as, as being the meanest teacher in school, and um, she once shook me for not reading a book, and, um, and she reeked of cigarette smoke, because when she wasn't teaching, she was chain-smoking behind the, the school building. And I remember one day, this, this boy named Adam, eight-year-old boy, third grade, he was kind of the class punching bag, and he had a hard time paying attention, and she says, Adam, 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 do you not think that voice is still with him? Maybe he still wears that name. Maybe he spent his entire life trying to find a new name that was better than being dumb. Maybe for you, your name is Class Clown, and you wear it with pride, but 
yet there's a slight sting to it because you wonder if anyone will like you when you're sad. Maybe your name was the helper because you love to help and serve other people, but you wonder, will, will there be anyone there to, to help me and to serve me? Will my service be exploited? Maybe the way you've been named is flaky or lazy or worthless or unwanted. Or maybe you've done like the city of Philadelphia and you've gone to other patrons and you said, who do you want me to be? What name do you want to give me? I'll take your name. I'll be who you want me to be. Um, Just tell me what it is and I'll do it. Maybe your sins are naming you like a scarlet letter and every time you look in the mirror, they're whispered by the accuser. And you look in that mirror and you see damaged goods or unfaithful. Maybe you've named yourself. I'm an achiever, I'm an overcomer, I'm a hard worker. And that's where I'll find my identity to escape the other names I've been given. Well, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is those names and those whispers of accusation come from the enemy. Do not think that they are benign. Just like the ancient Philadelphians had, um, they didn't have like a little red man with a pitchfork telling them you're not loved by God. They had a community of people telling them. And yet, the enemy was still at work in those accusations to shape them, to make them believe that God didn't love them. And we cannot, we cannot live as though that accusation is not there. The enemy is still at work doing what he's always done. And if we don't pay attention, those whispers will take over. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus promises to give you a new name. He promises to name you. He promises that his name will name you. All the way back in in Isaiah, as we read earlier, we get this picture of what that name will be. Isaiah prophesied about this new name, and he says, They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Jesus says, your name is is not unwanted, but sought out. Your name is not unloved. Your name is beloved of the Lord. And he says, I will write on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. See, the name of Jesus will be written on us. We will get his name through his life, his death on the cross and his resurrection. We get all that is his and we get his name. We get this new name And with it, we get a kingdom. And that's why he said at the beginning that he was going to put, in verse 8, he says, I'm going to put an open door before you. And that's why he says, this is coming. Remember, this is coming from the one that's the holy one, the true one, the faithful. Those names that in the Old Testament were only given to Yahweh, they now belong to Jesus. And he's going to give them to us. And he says he's also the, ones with, he's the one with the keys 
to the house of David. He's the one with the keys to the kingdom. And when you have his name, you get all that is his. And you get access. You get an open door. A door that is not shut to you. Some people have said, well, this is a missionary door. Just as Philadelphia was the missionary city to spread Greek customs to the east, so will this little church become a missionary church, sending out the gospel to the entire world. And I think that's true. But it's, but it's actually deeper than that. If we just believe that God will use us, that's great, but we have to see first that he loves us and that he invites us in. I heard someone recently say that, that through Christ, we're not just an instrument in his hands, we're a picture in his wallet. We're an object of his love. And I think that open door is more than just saying that you will be used to do great things. I think that open door is reminding them that they have access to God himself. Because in the very next, picture, the very next chapter, we get a vision of an open door. And that open door is opened by the slain lamb, and it's opened right into the holy throne room of God. And I think what Jesus is saying to them is, you have an open door to me. My door is not closed to you. And I'm actually what you've been looking for behind every other door that you've walked through. And that door to communion with me is open to you. And you can be with me and you can live life with me and I will listen to you and I will commune with you. It's open and no one can shut it. All you have to do is walk through it by faith. And that points to something about his love. Is that his love for us actually invites us in. He makes us lovable by the blood of Jesus. And then he says, come, I want to be with you. I desire your company. And so he's telling them that this open door is like a thousand shares of EMC stored up in your attic. Don't neglect it. I love you. Come to me. I want to hear you. I want to hear your problems and your petitions. You have access to God himself. And you can believe it because he's the holy one and the true one. And all who were baptized into Christ, they are the true heirs to the kingdom. It's not by ethnicity. It's not by wealth. It's by faith. And so we live by faith knowing that someday we will live by sight. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And when we do, we will all not just know that he loves us, but we will experience it, and we will see him face to face, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, and nothing will be able to separate us from his love. 
Through faith in Christ, you are loved by God. Let's live like it and hold fast to the promises.